0: Reed Hoffman uh, likes to quote Spider-Man and say, with great power comes great responsibility. Sort of what that means from the journalist's point of view is, with great power comes great responsibility, and with great responsibility comes great scrutiny. And that's just kind of table stakes for being that influential.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Teddy Schleifer, a journalist who covers billionaires and their involvement in politics, among other things. Teddy returns to the show to talk about the new enterprise that he's part of called Puck. Puck is a new media enterprise, partially owned by journalists, and what it aims to do is generally cover the intersection of money and power in Washington, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, or as they say, power, money, and ego. Teddy's column, which is part of Puck, is called the Stratosphere. We spoke about how Teddy came to entrepreneurship in political journalism and what is Puck. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Teddy Schleifer with Puck. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy.
0: Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at Graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: So, Teddy, you've been on the show before, so I don't like to make people do too much on the biographical side. I figure people can listen to the old episode, but tell me just quickly a little about yourself and what's new with you. Last time I was
0: on the show, I guess it was a little over a year ago, I was a reporter at Recode, which is part of Vox.com, covering the world of kind of Silicon Valley wealth. That all is still the case except for where I work. I am now a part of a new publication that's starting this fall called Puck, P-U-C-K. We've been coy about what exactly we are building, but... Now we're being much more open about Puck. Um, And it's supposed to be sort of a next generation media company that is kind of run by a group of a dozen journalists. Other folks who listeners of this podcast may know might be Peter Hamby, who kind of writes a lot about uh, digital media and its intersection with the party. Julia Yaffe, who's a longtime Washington correspondent. Matt Bellany, the former editor-in-chief of The Hollywood Reporter. Um, so there's a group of about eight reporters and other business types who are starting a publication sort of centered on on power, who wields it, um, the, the personalities, the culture, the characters, the drama. I'm in San Francisco still writing about sort of Silicon Valley billionaires and society. And we've got, as I mentioned, people in D.C., people in Hollywood, people in on Wall Street trying to kind of bring some of the tabloid style. But high-class uh, journalism that we think has sort of been uh, abandoned in the digital era.
1: If you choose a name like Puck, I'm assuming like a Shakespearean reference and a kind of a mischievousness. Exactly. Is that, is that right?
0: That 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 is correct. Um, uh, an exclusive piece of information for listeners of the podcast is I had never read A Midsummer Night's Dream before I took this job, but I did read it last week or two weeks ago. I find, I don't know. I just never got it in my... Uh, in my very elite education, I never uh, read Shakespeare or much Shakespeare. But yes, Puck, the character in Midsummer Night's Dream, is all about sowing chaos and uh, screwing things up accidentally. We don't want to screw things up, but we do want to have the same sort of uh, editorial sensibilities uh, that maybe Puck personifies in Shakespeare.
1: Well, I have to thank uh, my professor, Lars Engel, back at Yale in like 1986 give or take for uh, having me read that and being able to read at it this since time. I have probably read it once since My father is a Shakespearean and occasionally I try to read a little bit.
0: I have been uh, pleasantly surprised the number of people who uh, I say puck and immediately jump to Shakespeare uh, makes me feel very poorly educated, uh, compared to the people I write about, but everyone, everyone gets it. Puck is also, um, has a couple of other meanings too, but I would say the one that jumps out to people is, is the literary one. So
1: we we don't want it to be like pucker up and kiss the ass of the rich and famous, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I mean, I think the only other,
0: uh, you know, thing on the name is, you know, there's sort of a puckishness to, to, to that we're trying to bring, um, you know, definitely not puckering up, but we want to be, uh, irreverent, fun. You know, I think um, we don't want to be boring. I think there's actually a lot of media out there that is pretty boring, pretty uh, uh, perfunctory writing about things because that's how you're supposed to write about them and you're supposed to cover them. We believe that in 2021, you can uh, build a publication that re examines all those assumptions and build a publication that makes sense for the modern day. So we're starting from scratch. And if folks are interested, Over the summer, I've been writing a newsletter called The Stratosphere, which is a part of Puck, but for folks who are interested, and I think a lot of listeners of this podcast are because they're interested in sort of the the leading lights of the Democratic Party, the big funders, how they're channeling their money into politics, philanthropy, people can sign up at The Stratosphere, which is S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E. I think I got that right. The Stratosphere dot news. Um, or you can go to puck.news and, uh, hear more about it. But I think it would appeal to lots of people who listen to this podcast, because if you're interested in the democratic party, you gotta be interested in kind of the big donors because they have a lot of power. They have a lot of sway.
1: I want to get right into this as a business, you know, as well as anybody else that running a media business has been an awfully difficult thing to do on many fronts for the last. Well, there's just been a decline over you know, the last probably 40 years, I guess, particularly of late. How are you organizing this? You have 12 people. Are they co-owners? How do you share the revenue? How do you share the profits? How do you share the leadership? How is it organized?
0: Sure. So we have
1: it's a venture-backed media company. It's investor-backed. The,
0: the main investors are uh, TPG. And uh, standard industries, so we have kind of blue chip backing. But um, you know, I think a big part of the publication was being proudly journalist owned, right? So it's a publication that uh, you know we all have equity, and we're trying to build a media company that where there's the right incentives—the incentives to get in the right people to to pay for content um, and to pay for news and to pay for stuff that brings them joy, makes them better at their jobs. Um, so that's part of it. I have a ton of friends who. Uh, Have started Substacks, right? Over the last uh, decade, I'm sure, I'm sure you do too. You don't, you don't even have to be a
1: journalist to have a Substack. You can just be. Well, I don't have one, but I've certainly read a bunch of them. Yeah,
0: yeah, and people pay for them. Um, You know, I pay for some. Um, You know, and I think the way that media is is headed, and I think the way a lot of us believe media is headed, is toward a future in which journalists are more than just people who you know are keyboard monkeys who who write content, but that. The line between kind of journalist and entrepreneur is thinning um, and that people should be thoughtful about building a company that rewards good journalism, but not to kind of assume that, oh, like the business side of the house will take care of it. I think there's a great opportunity for journalists to be involved and to be conscious of the way that the business works or building this company in 2021 without, you know, the vestiges of a 20th century brand or a 20th century corporate structure. Um, we're building this from scratch. So, when I say we, by the way, I mean uh, this is certainly not my idea, but I'm part of a team that's uh, the first kind of wave of hires. So, it's venture backed, but
1: subscription based, and uh, journalists are kind of at uh, the fore of it. So, in terms of that ownership, what percentage of the company is owned by journalists as opposed to by the capital? backing
0: it i actually don't know um i'm not sure i'm not sure we're going to divulge the cap table on the podcast but um, but um but it's it's uh i actually don't I actually honestly also don't know um but overall i mean it's uh you know journalists journalist-owned publication which is which is rare you know in this day and age i mean if you go and take a job today at the wall street journal you're not getting you know equity in news corp right that's not how uh not how it works anymore Maybe for Rupert Murdoch's you know kids, you will get some. I don't
1: know TPG and Standard Industries that you referenced. Who are they, and why do they want to do this beyond uh, making money off it?
0: So, so TPG and Standard are are both folks who are you know blue chip Wall Street investors who who both uh, you know I don't, I don't speak for them, but I think uh, I think they see value in kind of rewarding creators, right? I mean TPG. Uh, was you know a big investor in companies like Spotify um, and other kind of media companies that have talent at the foreground of kind of the company's value. I assume just from talking and knowing kind of the ways that Silicon Valley and Wall Street are thinking about the future of media that there's a belief that the next generation of companies is going to be not just kind of taking journalists' product and you know selling ads against it, but Treating journalists almost as as creators, and journalists as talent that can, you know, hook in new audiences, and that was a lot of the appeal for me. Was you know I I worked at companies where you know you have a big audience, like like Recode and Vox. I worked at you know the Houston Chronicle, where you have a small kind of uh, local audience, Um, and I thought there was a chance to build again kind of a news community. Honestly, of people who. Live and breathe politics, live and breathe philanthropy, live and breathe development, and and people who who might want to start a a new publication centered around other people who live and breathe the same stuff. Um, And I think a lot of media investors are interested in fostering news communities, whether that's on Substack, whether that's on Discord, whether that's on Snapchat. Um, There's a new genre of kind of news consumer um who wants to know other people who share the same interests at least that's that's how i think about it based on just talking to smart people out here i'm guessing that's how investors think about it too
1: do each of the reporters have the same deal or do you have different deals or deals that reflect how well your particular part of things go in other words like is it like baseball players where if you hit a lot of home runs you're going to end up with a bigger contract if you're like a star reporter, you're going to get more than if you're a, I don't know, a AAA reporter. How does your relationship with this enterprise reflect incentives? I don't
0: totally know everyone's uh, situation. I mean, I mean, for me, you know, the New York Times called this uh, Vanity Fair for the Substack era. Not, not my words,
1: but but it's a, also a sentence that only. You know, a small percentage of the population yeah. can, can decode, <laughs> uh, right?
0: Yeah, you have to know, uh, you know, I think a pretty the New York Times readership would, would would get it. But yes, the average person probably has no idea what the hell we're talking about. We all are owners in the company and we also all are incentivized the right way to make sure that we're we're growing the audience overall at the same time as we're growing our own individual audiences too. So uh, if folks want to subscribe, they can go to the stratosphere.news and... <laughs> Hear more about it. I feel like I'm plugging a campaign website. Donate at
1: JebBush2016.com. Yeah, i ain't gonna help him. Yeah, um, the this, <laughs> this, the Stratosphere. Yes, is that? I mean, is that then owned by you externally? To no, no, Puck, that's just, or is that like then become their brand or we your? are
0: all we are all we are all Puck? Um, the company
1: we are is all Puck. Puck. It sounds like can the whole be bigger than the sum of the parts?
0: Yeah, I think I think that was the idea. I personally wasn't interested in doing a Substack myself. I have a lot of uh, followers and, and fans who maybe listen to to your show, um, but I definitely want to work with great editors. I want to work with a great team. I want to work with great colleagues, and I wasn't interested in the solo journey of of starting my own thing. But I definitely was interested in harnessing uh, some of the themes that make people go to Substack, some of the same incentives and some of the same motives of. Uh, of striking out alone without totally doing uh, Substack for the Substack era wasn't necessarily interesting to me, but Vanity Fair for the Substack era uh, held some appeal. I wanted to be part of a team.
1: Who's in charge? Is there a CEO? Is there
0: an uh, executive? Yeah, well, there's a whole crew of people. Joe Perchicki is the CEO. The editor-in-chief is a guy named John Kelly, who used to be uh, at Vanity Fair and the New York Times and Business Week. Those are my bosses. Uh, for anybody who has complaints, uh, when I inevitably annoy some client who is out there, um, that's who you guys can complain to.
1: So to what extent then will you be sort of like a tenured professor doing your own thing, writing about whatever the hell you feel like and what you're interested in? And to what extent might you get assigned something to do? What's your expectation?
0: Yeah, so I mean, the best the best editing relationships I've had in my uh, short years uh, pre being canceled for something are collaborations. You know, I've worked with great editors um, who have great ideas, and I'm definitely someone who likes the kind of hustle and bustle of of a newsroom. Not that that really exists uh, anymore, but I wanted to work with with people who had other other ideas. I'm not that arrogant. I think that I'm <laughs> I'm going to come up with everything. Here at POC, I get great ideas from my colleagues. I sometimes have an okay idea or two, and it's a collaboration. Every newsroom is different, by the way. There is a lot of uh, mysterious sausage making about how journalism works. So I get this question all the time from people not in media, like, hey, how do you come up with ideas? You know, Do you just consult your brain? Do you get barked at by an editor? And the honest answer in media is it honestly depends. I have friends who work in newsrooms where they have very limited autonomy. And I have friends who work at Substack, right, who can write whatever the hell they want. I do think that journalism often is overly mysterious about its inner workings. And part of, part of one of the ideas of, of Puck is to sort of break down the fourth wall, where rather than say, here is an article, please consume it, and then never hear from me again, you know, I'm writing emails to people this summer for folks who are on my list. Uh, the stratosphere.news or jebbush.com. But for folks on the list, you know, I tell them like, Hey, here's, this isn't really a story, but here's something going on. Or like I wrote an item earlier this month about Kat Taylor, who is the, uh, I guess now separated wife of Tom Steyer. Um, very wealthy woman, uh, out here in the Bay area, Kat Taylor. There's been some speculation about Kat Taylor, possibly running for office in her own right. um, Am I reporting that Kat Taylor is running for office according to four sources familiar with the matter? No. I'm just saying there are some people speculating about it. And I did some reporting. I talked to some people around Kat Taylor, got some context about who she is, talked to some smart people who had some insights into whether or not she might. That's how the real world works. I think we want to talk to people like you were talking to your friend at a bar. You know, if your friend at a bar asked you, Is Kat Taylor running for office? You wouldn't say, you know, according to seven sources familiar with the matter, this is exactly what's happening. You might say, hey, I talked to someone who kind of knows her and this is what she's thinking, or if she did run, maybe she ran for this. Um, So we're trying to break the fourth wall and talk about the news as real people talk about it, not in this sort of Stentorian faux capital J journalist sort of way, if that makes sense.
1: So what's the scope, would you say, of the types of stories that you're interested in doing uh, for yourself? Uh, and then maybe answer that also for puck.
0: So I think for for folks who have uh, listened to my episode with you last year, or, or follow me on Twitter, or any self promotional stuff like that, I'm always interested in in the personalities and the money behind what happens on the front page. I often feel like we're barely scratching the surface of kind of the political world because. Understanding kind of the money behind the system is complicated. It's arcane. It requires understanding IRS filings, FEC filings, FCC filings, looking at random stuff that people don't have the time or, frankly, uh, obsession to figure out. I have the time and I have the obsession, and I know the right people at this point to figure out where to look. So I'm always interested in uh, in the personalities. I'm also somebody who, who cares a lot about inequality. You know, I think that the rise of kind of this mega billionaire class, not even just people with $1 billion, but 10 a $50, 100000000000 billion, they're now like, I think, a dozen people with over $100 billion, which wasn't true probably when I came on the podcast a year ago. These people have a ton of power. It's not power in a negative sense. It's not corrupt power, but, you know, they do have power. You know, Reed Hoffman uh, likes to quote Spider-Man and say, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, And I think he's right. And I think that sort of what that means from the journalist point of view is with great power comes great responsibility. And with great responsibility comes great scrutiny. And that's just kind of table stakes for being that influential. A lot of my job is as a, you know, not to be too high minded about it, but to serve as the fourth estate and to provide some scrutiny of, of the wealthy and how they're channeling their power, how they're fulfilling their responsibilities That's what I get out of bed excited about. Is not taking down rich people or you know stroking the egos of rich people. Both of which I'm accused of on the regular, which doesn't make any sense to me. But I'm just here to try to uncover what's actually happening, Um, because what's actually happening, you know, doesn't really get written about. Someone asked Al Gore like, what percent of the campaign actually made it onto the onto the into the pages of the New York Times? And I don't I don't remember what number he said. It was like one percent or ten percent. I'm sure someone. Can tell me what the actual quote is, or it's probably made up entirely. But we don't really know what's happening, and I kind of want to figure it out.
1: I'm, I'm curious about that relationship then with the people that you want to cover. I know, even in my low stakes, low listenership podcast, that when I cover uh, different players in in my arena, that in my mind is always a little bit like if I'm too mean people won't want to be interviewed by me and i you know i've had some examples where friends of mine have been upset by the way i covered their competitors or or themselves and you're talking here about very wealthy people who are very used to controlling their environment and their reputations and and you tend to not be a like a person without a critical bone in your body, right? You're, you're looking with a critical eye at very wealthy people. When you get access, do you feel at all constrained in what you say and how you say it? And how do you cope with that relationship?
0: It's a great question. Um, I'm sure every, every journalist on every beat thinks about that. I think savvy people understand that media is going to cover them and call balls and strikes and lift them up and tear them down at the same time and they're interested in the long game. If I was, you know, worth 30 billion dollars and spending 100 million dollars on campaigns every 2 years, I'm just making up an example. I would expect to get coverage. I think the savvy people understand that I have a job to do and my job is is not necessarily aligned with their job, right? I get it. I, like you know, if I, if I was running, you know, some a nonprofit or super PAC, and you know, one of my pitch decks leaked to some scummy reporter named Teddy Schleifer. I would be pissed off. I would totally get it, but I would also understand that he's doing his job. My job is to make sure that that deck doesn't get out there in the first place, right? In fact, him acquiring the deck, he is doing his job, and that's probably in the broad sweep of history, good for democracy. For people to know about it. I don't know if I would think that in the moment because I'd probably be too mad, but maybe on, on my deathbed, I would think that um, it wasn't as big a deal in the moment as I made it out to be. So I think savvy sources understand that I have a job to do. And, you know, my job is not necessarily even to lift up. Uh, certainly not to lift up their client, certainly not to even lift up the Democratic Party. I don't work for the Democratic Party. I don't work for their client. You know, I'm theoretically sort of working for the public interest, right? And that often means disclosing things or criticizing things or, you know, analyzing things in ways that they would not write it themselves the way that I write it. Totally get that. But to your question, I think lots of sources don't are not that way. I think lots of people, um, even though they should have in my Biased opinion should have some humility and and understanding of the job to do. I do think lots of uh, wealthy people expect you know reporters to be subservient to them. Not just reporters, but frankly, you talk with financial aides to wealthy people, and and they kind of encounter the same expectation that you're going to be you're going to venerate them in a certain way. So it's not just you know oh I'm the reporter you're the rich guy. Um, it's you know, you're somebody else and I'm the rich guy. So oftentimes I do find that wealthy people, even if they say the right things about welcoming scrutiny and, you know, nothing to hide and come investigate me. Uh, I often find that in practice they have zero interest in being transparent or publicly accountable. Um, sad to say, but that's, that's, that's the way the world works.
1: One of the other ways the world works I've noticed is that some of these uh, wealthy people who are in politics and are funding different enterprises are now following a model of signing their employees or their funded groups to non-disclosure agreements. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of people who have been very, very, very careful about what they said and what they didn't say because of legal agreements that they've signed. How do you deal with that? Do people, will people talk to you like off the record around those agreements? How do you see that practice in that space?
0: Sure. So it's um, a great question. You know, I think there's been a nda of of the world, not just politics. Like, you know, here in Silicon Valley, uh, reporters often complain about when you sign in to some office to like, you know, get lunch with a friend, frequently at the front desk, you have to sign NDA, which is ridiculous. Some reporters I know will rather than signing their name on the NDA we'll just write some you know, garble uh, Mickey on Mouse. the form and yeah. press submit right? so you get around it. So yes, I think in the world, there has been uh, a, 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 hey, what the hell, throw in another NDA to kind of just in case protect ourselves. But I think there are downsides to that because it creates the impression that the NDA is this holy grail. And I think it probably cheapens the whole idea of NDAs when things actually are confidential. But to your, to your question, look, I mean, uh, I obviously deal with Sensitive stories all the time and deal with sensitive sources all the time. And there's nothing more important to me than honoring my word when I say I will not publish somebody's name. And, you know, frequently that's really the only way to get real information. Um, if you want to know how the world actually works and not how the world works via press release and tweet, you have to understand confidentiality. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean. You can't figure out what's really happening now. And so, you know, in journalism, there's the concept of of on background, which I'm sure uh, lots of listeners have at least some exposure with, meaning that the information can be reported, just not disclosed exactly who gave it to them. So, you know, frequently if people read uh, what I write, they'll see, you know, a fundraiser involved in the conversation said X, Y, or Z. And nobody in the world knows who that fundraiser in the conversations is, except for me and maybe my editor. Um, And I take that to the grave. Um, And I think that's the only way to get real information. I do think that you should feel good, uh, Nathaniel. I mean, your podcast is, I'm frequently impressed by uh, the stuff you get people to say on here.
1: I don't think anyone's given up any state secrets. I think what I've discovered is people are quite willing to talk about the things that they're proud about doing. And most of the people that come on my podcast are working awfully hard in their mind to make the country better and so you know they're it makes it makes sense for them to talk about about their careers and about what they're doing.
0: Yeah, no, but you do a great job uh getting folks to to actually engage and i I find myself as I, as I'm recording a house ad for for the show right now, I find myself frequently turning to the show to find some newsmaker um, really you know answer questions about the news they're making and I find uh, your show is one of the few places
1: where people really answer the question. Well, probably should add me to the the staff of Puck then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the terms I've seen you wield is the the, the donor class. That's a amorphous term actually because donor class has many layers. There's there's a lot of people in this country by far from a majority, but they contribute uh, according to their ability. But I assume that you're really referring to people who can throw enough money to make a difference and really be heard, Uh, you know, more than just like a max out donor to a individual campaign, but people who are throwing in six, seven, eight figures and up um, well, well out of a normal American's ability to have influence. But what but what do you think of when you think about donor class and and more to that, like do you have generalizations about these people?
0: Yeah. So we call it the, the stratosphere, um, because I do believe there is this rarefied air uh, of people who control a lot of the party fundraising, uh, and nonprofit fundraising and philanthropic fundraising that, you know, as uh they say at the end of Gatsby, you know, they're just different. I think a savvy critique of media coverage of, of money and politics might argue that reporters overly focus on the people who give six, seven, eight figures um, in a way that discounts kind of the, the, the bundler class, people who raise 2800 or $2,900 checks over time, or certainly uh, of kind of small donors who are making up a bigger and bigger percentage uh, of kind of both parties' uh, pots. So I was, during 2016, was at CNN covering money and politics. And it was interesting because that campaign, I was mostly covering the Republican primary. For folks who want to trip down memory lane, speaking of Jeb Bush and his website, jebbush.com, that campaign was crazy because donors had so much perceived sway in 2016 just because there was, you know, this after Citizens United. There's wealthy people who... They just had so much power. Like we were seeing these super PACs form where donors would form their own super PACs. I mean, I mostly covered Ted Cruz in 2016. And for folks who forget, he had these four or five different super PACs, all called Keep the Promise. The Mercers were in one of them. And um other donors were allied with Kellyanne Conway. Each donor had this like, you know, swagger to them. And in 2020, you know, we didn't really see that as much because smaller and smaller donors are making up a bigger part of the pie. I mean, certainly Sheldon Adelson and Charles Koch and Reid Hoffman and Dustin Moskovitz and George Soros uh, and Tom Steyer all still have a lot of power, but you could argue that their power has waned from 2016 when one individual American could decide, I'm going to set up a super PAC and, you know, pull Sheldon Adelson for Newt Gingrich sort of move and extend the Republican primary by weeks just because they believed that this person was the best candidate on on Israel or whatever issue. Now, donors have, I think, I guess I'm making this argument aloud, I think they do have less power. And these mega donors do have less power than they did five years ago. They still have a lot of power, but I think
1: it's less than they once did. There's a school in, of political science that thinks it's much less about Contributors buying influence than it is about politicians extracting money from interests. How do you fall on that uh, divide in interpretation? I don't totally know.
0: So the, the the other argument, right? I think you're referring to is the idea that politicians kind of con wealthy people into thinking that they have in, that the wealthy donors have influence over them, but in reality they don't.
1: Or just you know they make sure they get money from an industry to regulate them the way they want to be regulated. Fund me or, or you know, you don't have a seat at the table.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, look, I mean, I'm based in San Francisco. Uh, a big theme of my work in, over the last two years uh, was covering the Silicon Valley Democratic Party relationship as seen in campaign fundraising. And it was, let me tell you, schizophrenic. One day you would see, you know, Pete Buttigieg out here fundraising from rich executives at companies like Facebook or, you know, frankly, not Pete Buttigieg. Most Democrats, you know, Joe Biden were raising from uh, these people. And then by evening fundraising event, they would be out there saying, you know, these companies are killing people, as Biden recently said. And and made me wonder, like, you know, uh, do they think that the donors don't watch the news? Um, do they think they don't see the interview with Jake Chapper? Um, But obviously, it's a tightrope walk in any sort of donor maintenance with rich people. Democrats have to do it on kind of tech issues. You know, you see Republicans have to do it on any sort of industry issue where they're theoretically aligned with the industry, but maybe not aligned with the base of the party. It's not easy. That's a good question. I, I wish I knew the answer.
1: So what might we expect different from you and your colleagues in their reporting if they're sort of unleashed by being in their own enterprise? Or maybe are you going to be more cautious? What do you think changes, if anything, being part of puck versus w- reporting for the organs that you've worked for before?
0: Today there, are, there are a few things that I think people will, will like. One is uh, I think we're trying to cultivate a community of insiders here, of people who really love this stuff. And, you know, when I was at Vox, there's certainly stuff that I was interested in that might be too inside baseball for the average Vox reader. But I do not think it would be too inside baseball for folks who listen to this show or follow me on Twitter or anything like that who who kind of love the game. Like I love the game, and I uh, think that other people who love the game will find more stuff up their alley than, was true at Vox and I think that's true frankly for you know other people who I work with as well like if you're interested in Hollywood you know Matt Bellany's you know bi-weekly email called what I'm hearing is you know a Mike Allen-esque tip sheet of what's happening in Hollywood and there's sort of like a no bullshit vibe to, to all of our newsletters that I think people may find different than um, other publications they read where if a donor is controversial uh, in the world I cover, I'm just going to say they're controversial. And because I'm talking to the right people who know they're controversial and we don't need to like hem and haw and hedge and, you know, cover our ass in like this way that doesn't make sense. We're just going to say they're controversial because they are. And um, just trust that we're talking to the right people because um, the people who are subscribing to to Puck, I think are a lot of the same people we're writing about are, are folks who are also subscribers.
1: Among your... Colleagues, who are you most excited about reading going forward?
0: Ooh, that's a great question. Um, So basically another way of this question is, which of my seven colleagues do I want to just throw firmly under the bus here?
1: Who do you really wish wasn't part of it? Yeah, right. (laughs)
0: Um, So I'm a big fan of Julia Yaffe, who um, I've I've admired her work from afar for a long time. I mean, Julia sort of has made her name as one of uh, America's kind of leading experts on Russia. She spent a lot of time in Russia. She was at GQ, The New Republic, um, and you know sh- her her uh, dispatches from Washington are called "Tomorrow Will Be Worse," um, which is uh, quite puckish, I would say. I- I'm really enjoying Julia's. I think it's a great um, a great read about Washington culture, sort of in the Mark Leibovich style, chronicling people stabbing each other in the back, uh, you know, speaking out of both sides of their mouth. You know, I think she's got some great observations on the media and self reflections on the ways that we're screwed up for other things that are just out there. um, I'm a huge fan of Baratunde Thorsten, who uh, is a comedian and writer and commentator on race. Uh, Baratunde is also somebody I've admired from afar. I never got to work with him up close. He's someone who is just hilarious and super fun. Um, So we've got some, we've got some good guys. Who do you wish you could recruit? Everybody. I feel like I feel like I've gotten a lot of outreach from people who are are interested in what we're doing, and uh, I you know I humbly think we're one of the most exciting things happening in digital media these days, and I think I'm getting lots of uh, outreach from friends who are interested in what we're doing too. So doors open if anyone wants to bother me, and I can pass them along. How did you get the job, Teddy? I got to know John Kelly, the guy I mentioned earlier, over you know a year or two, and was instantly drawn to the idea. I mean, I hear lots of ideas in digital media that I think are pretty bad. I always hear them out. uh, But from the moment I first heard about the vision for this, it just instantly clicked. Um, And I think that's why I kept them on the line and kept talking. And it's been great so far.
1: So is there something that we should expect from you coming up? What should we be looking for?
0: Yeah, so Puck is is launching formally around Labor Day. um, And for folks who... Uh, are on my email list, the um, Stratosphere. There's a discount we're offering. I think 25% off. It's only 75 bucks for a year, um, and you get access to me, Peter Hamby, Julia Yaffe, Barry Tunde, Matt Bellany, Tina Wynn, a whole host of of, of great people. Um, so it's cheaper than maybe uh, a Substack you pay for. Um, and I think for for progressives who are interested in the debate about rich people, the debate about fundraising, the debate about inequality. um, I think it should scratch a lot of your itches. But if you uh, buy now before the deal goes away, (laughs) less than a cup of coffee a day, you can subscribe. Um, No, but uh, uh, we're launching around Labor Day and folks should uh, get in the door
1: uh, as soon as they're able. Well, appreciate you coming on to talk about it. I wish you luck in the venture. I hope to catch some of the things that you and your colleagues write about. Thanks so much for having me. So that was Teddy Schleifer. Teddy is at puck.news. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.